Zhu Zhi, a Chinese-Indonesian native of Hong Kong and author of nine books of fiction and essays. She's one of the most celebrated writers of our community. But although she grew up here, her writing is done in various parts of the globe. You know, I've been writing since I was a little kid, so and I tra- I've traveled a great deal in my life. I, when I was young, I worked for Cathay Pacific Airways for a while, so I was traveling and writing. And then, when in the nineties, I also worked for Federal Express and traveled a lot too. So, in, in all my travels, uh, both in my corporate life and in my writer's life, um, you know, I write everywhere. So, so and do we see that? In your writing, is the travel evident? Not necessarily. I mean, uh, I mean, I have short stories, for example, set in different parts of the world, but not a lot of the places I've traveled to. Um, in fact, a lot of the places I go to never make it into my work. In some of my travel essays, yes, of course, you can see where I've been, but you probably see where I am on Facebook <laughs> in my work. So what is it that got you started on this writing journey? Because you grew up in Hong Kong, Mm -hmm. and then you went to a very small college in New York State. That's right. Which is unusual. Well, they were giving money to foreign students. That was really good incentive. And I had an uncle. He was my father's cousin, the only member of my father's family who went to America. And he said, well, tell your daughter to try this college because they're giving away money. And, you know, you can't can't argue with that. So how did that take you onto this writing journey? Well, that was the first place I actually could take a class in creative writing. But I've been writing since I was a little kid, and I was writing stories and essays and things like that. But um, I, you know, Hong Kong didn't really have creative writing per se in, in secondary school. So this was the first opportunity for me to actually study it. Um, and I enjoyed that. So that was the beginning of understanding that, hey, this is a real life. People actually do this. And there are actually magazines and journals and places that you can go to to, to read contemporary literature. But do people actually do this in the way that they did this perhaps a few centuries ago? Meaning, can you be a full-time writer? Oh, yes. I mean, if you come from a wealthy background, which is how they did it a few centuries ago, obviously you can. Now, I didn't, so obviously I couldn't do it without making a living. But, you know, I was a middle-class kid with a a good education, some privilege in a place like Hong Kong. I could get a job. To me, if you can get a job and you can support yourself and you all, you know, you have a life, you're able to, you know, just do things, you can write. Writing is something you can do regardless. It's, it's the most inexpensive art form. It's just paper and pencil or pen. Wow, you make it sound so easy. <laughs> it isn't, of course. You, uh, you have to be sort of obsessed and want to do it. I think that that's the thing. But, you know, the biggest excuse I hear is, you know, as a writer, I often meet people who tell me, oh, I've always wanted to write a novel or oh, my life should be a book, etc. It's like, yeah, fine. So go write it, you know. I mean, literally, you sit down and you write. That's how it begins. The average person already has too few hours in a day to do whatever it is that they're supposed to be doing or they think they're supposed to be doing. How do you then take those extra hours and find the time to write? Well, it depends what the priorities in your life are, what you enjoy doing. For me, writing was a kind of play as a child. I mean, I would much rather um, sit at home and read a book or write 
then go out and play tennis. Although in my mother's eyes, it was go play tennis. It's good exercise. <laughs> and I would have to hide from all the things I was supposed to be doing in order to do what I loved. So once you're an adult, you get to choose because there isn't mommy or daddy telling you you have to do this or that. You choose what you want to do. So yes, when it's weekend, you can, you know, go party till you drop or you can sit at home and write. I used to actually carve out my mornings, early mornings before work and carve out my weekends to write. That's what I did because I enjoyed it. It was something that I thought was more entertaining, if you like, than television, than films. I don't go to movies very often. Um, I, I almost have to like, I, I, fortunately, my partner's a movie buff. So in order to know what the latest movies are, I just ask him because I actually don't bother watching a lot of films. Um, I prefer to read. If only the average person were more like you, you know, they could create because they enjoy reading. I mean, in this day of ADHD, how do you get people uh, to do that? I mean, how do you hold their attention span? When I was doing my MFA, my Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing at the University of Massachusetts, I didn't have a television. I deliberately did not own a TV. My ex-husband at the time was um, a jazz musician. So between the two of us, he practiced music and I wrote and read. And this is how I produce a huge body of work, which I am still to this day, I think some of it I'm still revising and is still what fuels my writing. Um, I think there is um, a space and place where you can, you know, break out from the world. Now, today, if I want to write, I have to clear my head of... How many emails do I answer? How many text messages am I going to send? How many Facebook posts am I going to do? Um, you can spend your entire time doing this. It doesn't make you a writer. Or you can just write. And I would rather just write. So now this is interesting. You say that till today or up until today, you have this huge body of work, which you still continue to work on, mm -hmm. that influences your writing. Yes, it so does. What do you mean? What What do you mean by that? What is the difference between the body of work and the writing? Is it not one and the same? No, the body of work is all the drafts, all the titles you wrote, all these paragraphs, all these notes, all the journals. I've got tons of stuff that will never actually see the light of published day. Um, I have whole novels that will never see the light of published day. Um, but uh, it, all that writing is practice. It's like if you're a dancer, you will dance daily as practice, right? It's something you have to do. But those performances that you go and actually do your sparkling best are not something that happens every single day, you know? It's when you get to perform. It's the same for an actor, for uh, a musician. Um, somebody like a, a painter will paint lots of, you know, uh, painters are quite famous for like destroying their own canvases. <laughs> they, they will paint over their existing work. Well, it's the same with drafts of writing. You don't show everything that you write because a lot of it is just sheer unadulterated crap and you should know it. You should be able to edit yourself and get rid of it and, and say, okay, this is what I'm going to show. This is what I'm going to try to get out into the world. So that's very interesting. 
Is that the case for all writers or is this just unique to you? Well, I think every writer has slightly different processes, but I've certainly talked to other writers who do what I do. And then I've talked to other, I'm a fairly prolific writer. I know writers who are very clear about, you know, they may only write or produce, let's say, two books in their lifetime. That doesn't mean that they don't write pages and pages of work, but there's perhaps less that they want to put out there. And or they write much more slowly. So for some writers, you know, two lines a day is a lot, but they've crafted it. They've gone back over it. They've rewritten it a thousand times. Whereas for other people, 2,000 words a day is nothing. So it depends. It depends on your process, the kind of person you are, the kind of writer you are. The kind of person you are dictates the kind of writer you are, I think. And so what is it that on a daily basis you write, if that's not you know, specific work towards a novel Mm -hmm. that you're producing, what are these paragraphs and sentences? Well, I write a lot of different things at the same time. I mean, I usually have one long work that's in progress, a novel, um, usually. Um, And then I write short stories. I also write essays. I write more than one form. So, um, and right now I'm also working on an essay collection towards um, that I hope will eventually be a book. So these are the other things you could write. I also keep a journal. I keep two kinds of journal. One is the Life Sucks journal. And then the other journal is the one I have this idea for something I want to write about. Or I think I need to research X, Y, or Z. And let me go online and see what there is. Or let me go and check this book or that book or this reference source. Um, there's the journal that is the more of the writer's journal, where you think about what you're reading, uh, what it is you want to write about, how you might want to explore an idea, a problem in the plot of a story you're trying to work on. You know, So I keep these two kinds of journals sort of concurrently, and I could be writing any one of these things at any given time. And are these public journals? Oh, God, no. <laughs> so this is just purely for your own... Um it's your own process of, uh, you know, the sure. juicing, if you yeah. will. I burnt a whole bunch of handwritten journals, uh, the ones I kept from the age of 11 to about 25 at one point in my life. Oh, my goodness. Why? I mean, these are the things that later on, you know, readers yearn to read writer's well, journals. Why would you burn them? They're not for public view. And I was sort of, I was in an argument with my ex-husband at the time. And so there was this great burning. It was very cathartic and I've never regretted it. Your characters, they show up in your different Novels, published work. Yeah, they do. They, they repeat themselves. Yeah. Yet these are not sequels. No, I don't write sequels or prequels or anything like that. So, They're independent. Um, I think that once you invent a character, especially for a novel, it takes an enormous amount of work. You've got to imagine this person's whole back story, their history, when they were born. In some cases, I go right down to their birthday, their astrological sign, you know, the both the Chinese and the Western one, um, what they ate for breakfast, you know, it depends how detailed, uh, depending on how um, major a character that is. But certainly for a novel, all the key characters have huge histories. Uh, I know who their parents were, I know what their middle name is, and, and all this stuff doesn't necessarily appear in the book. 
but it's been invented because you have to know them. You know what their favorite color is, who they had a crush on in high school, uh, which is their favorite movie star, etc., etc. Um, but then all that invented stuff's quite useful for a future story. And sometimes these characters, like, I, okay, I had one character who died in a novel, okay? I just killed him off. He was a kid. But, you know, the kid had friends. So um, I most recently published a story about this kid who's already dad, but his friends have now grown up. They're now college age, and they're remembering him. Um, and I thought, I know this kid. I know what he's about. And let me imagine his friends. Because there was one friend. She was his friend um, like in kindergarten or grade school, I think. And she existed in my earlier novel. But she just had like a cameo appearance. But I knew who her parents were and what that they were divorced and what they were like. Um, so I invented that friend again for this story, plus two other friends. Um, and so they all appeared in uh, my short story. And why do you choose to do this? Do you feel that, you know, one book is not enough to justify your investment in developing that character? Um, it's sort of like, why why do the work again? <laughs> you know, you like the characters. I mean, you come to know them quite well, so they become quite real to you. And sometimes, in some cases, I repeat characters because I kind of felt like I didn't get to know her well enough. This happened to two major characters, three actually, um, who were the subject in a previous book uh, in a more minor way. And then they took a more leading role in the next book. And in the next book, they take an even greater leading role, etc. Because they somehow don't leave you. They're still sort of there nagging at you going, tell my story, tell my story. So you tell their story. They're kind of like kids asking for, you know, attention. And so you give them attention when they ask for it. Does that mean that these books are written in rapid succession of each other? Not always, no. Uh, some of them take a long time um, to repeat themselves. Um, I invented one character way back in the mid-90s, early 90s or so. Um, I had a quite a strong sense of his father who was important uh, as a minor character in the book. So I kind of knew he existed, but I didn't know a whole lot about him, but I could sort of picture him. And he kept growing and growing and growing, but it was years later before I gave him space in the book. Uh, he now has his own book. The book's not published yet, but he became kind of an important character. He's sort of the center point of the book. Um, and so I'm hoping that novel will get published. My agent's trying to shop it around right now. So, Does this mean that um, as an author, you are, I don't want to use the word limited, that's, that's wrong, but your scope is one genre that you don't step outside of? Genre? No, I write more than one genre. So, But with these oh, same with these characters. characters? Well, yeah, but that wouldn't be a genre. I guess it's one world. You know, um, I o very occasionally step outside and write about sets of characters that are outside the main world. But there is a central world of, it's a fairly cosmopolitan one. It's rather multinational people, people who travel, who live in more than one country, um, who might be mixed race. Um, because this is my most fundamental world. This is the world I grew up in. It's the world I've always 
liked to live in and wanted to live in, and I continue to live in it. I like to to interact with people from different cultures and different countries who speak different languages from me as well, because I learn a lot that way, and I feel most at home in that world. So that's kind of my fictional home, if you like. It's not my non-fictional world, of course, because my non-fictional world is my real life, you know, but my fictional world, yeah. So that's true that I tend to stay in there quite a lot, but um, I do write these odd stories that don't fit into that world. They're, they're just like a one-off. And so there are those, too. Um, what are those? They're funny. I mean, they, they could be an offshoot of this world. For example, I have a short story about this Singaporean woman who's, you know, she, she also mixes in this international kind of world. But she kind of came out of nowhere. I lived in Singapore for a year. And that was one of those sort of Singapore stories that happened. I didn't write very many stories in Singapore, set in Singapore. That was one. Many years earlier, I wrote a story set in Malaysia. Um, again, from a trip I did to Port Dixon in Malaysia, this sort of <laughs> strange little resort area, and um, I saw this tree, the, 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 the metaphor of a tree that I called the raining tree, because it had buds that fell to the ground. It was very noisy. And so um, I turned that into a story. Um, and that really was sort of outside my main world. And, and this happens. I have some about um, Hong Kong Chinese, a uh, Hong Kong Chinese world that doesn't really step into the more it has some crossover of obviously because Hong Kong is so international but not really it's a very Chinese world uh, where really the character is thinking in Cantonese and I have to try to make that happen on the page so I have a few stories like that um, and perhaps there'll be more I don't know I mean because I sometimes see these stories in my head and I try to write them say your fictional world is quite different from your real world, but uh, it makes me think, well, is that actually true? Because Not you, entirely, no. Yeah. Not entirely, uh-huh. right? So you grew up here in Hong Kong, and one would think by looking at you or looking at your name that you're a Hong Kong local Chinese writer, but your home environment was not Cantonese speaking. No, not at all. I mean, we spoke Cantonese with our ayis, you know, uh, because we had three amas at home at the time. But my parents were from Indonesia, so they spoke Javanese to each other, you know, a dialect. Uh, when they, and they didn't teach that to us, so we couldn't understand them. And uh, then they would speak English to us. But for both of them, English was very much like a second or third lang- third language, really. Uh, my father spoke Mandarin. He was fluent and he read and write Mandar- wrote Mandarin. But he didn't speak to us in Mandarin. Uh, my mother picked and father both picked up Cantonese here. But... Um, my mother was not very good at Chinese. She had very little formal Chinese training as a kid. So she kind of knew a little bit of it. But um, in Hong Kong, she learned more because you kind of needed it to get around. But she had a very bad accent. So we used to make fun of her <laughs> like kids will. You know, we're really cruel. So yeah, mom can't speak Cantonese, you know. And we'd speak over her. And um, and 
my siblings and I made up our own languages to speak. It was kind of a mix of Pig Latin, French, and Chinese. You know, um, so that's kind of the linguistic background I grew up. In. And of course, I had um, older relatives who spoke Dutch, who were Indonesian Dutch um, educated. Um, so we heard all these different languages. And my dad was doing business with Japanese people, so we heard a kind of Japanese English in our household and. Um, I found it all really interesting. And we had um, Welsh friends and um, British friends, um, very few American friends, but I went to an American-run school. It was run by American nuns, so I had I heard American English. I had Indian friends when I was a kid. We had sort of many mixed-race friends um, also who, who were in our household, so um, to me, that was the world. And then, but then I went to school in Hong Kong. So I looked around. And I thought, ah, but real life is different. It's all Cantonese, <laughs> and you had to learn it if you were in Hong Kong. So this wide and variegated cast of characters, both at home within the mm-hmm. family, and then all your friends, do we see them in your writing? Do they show up as characters? Um, certainly in my nonfiction, my aunt. I actually wrote about one of my aunts. Um, I've written about my parents. Uh, uh, in my nonfiction, in my essays, because I've written about growing up in Hong Kong um, and written about my relationship with them, sort of memoir-like essays. Um, I Yeah, some of my friends appear in disguise, I guess, <laughs> in my fiction, but they a few of them appear in my nonfiction. I'm a little bit careful about using real people in nonfiction when I actually refer to somebody and use them in quite, dramatized form in an essay, I usually show it to them before I publish it to see if they're okay with it. Really? Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. Why do you do that? I know so many writers who would never dream of having it be signed off. Well, I think in non in literary work, I mean, if I was a journalist, no, I, I wouldn't, you know, because a journalist has the right to, you know, if you're quoting somebody and they know that they're being interviewed, that's different. But the kind of nonfiction I write is literary nonfiction. So the people from my real life who appear in my nonfiction, they become a kind of character. And they need to know that I'm using them because otherwise it wouldn't be ethical. It wouldn't be moral. I don't think it's moral to just sort of write about other people um, without in some way letting them know that they are being featured. And again, do you think that's peculiar to you as a writer? Or do writers do this? I know other nonfiction writers who do this, who are quite careful if they're going to feature real people from their lives. But if you're writing about your life in memoir and personal essays, you're going to name people that you know. Or if I name people, I don't identify them. You can always change someone's name and make it clear or just use an initial or something like that. I think that's a, a moral stance I take about how you write nonfiction in a literary way where you're using some narrative techniques um, because you don't want to misrepresent other people. Because at the end of the day, it's about what you think and what you feel. It's your opinion. It's your perspective of the world. So what happens in a situation where you show them this work before it's published and they don't like it? Has that happened? It hasn't happened yet, no. Oh, you're lucky. Yeah. <laughs> what uh, What would be a stance if it did happen? Would you change it then? I'd not publish it, I guess, you know. Um, I wouldn't want to, especially if it's a friend. But, you know, I probably wouldn't be writing about someone if I didn't in some way uh, know that I could, you know, 
I think that would be true. And again, I, if I just make a reference to like my ex-husband, for example, I don't need to show that to him, obviously, because this is a fact that he was my ex-husband, you know? Um, and uh, if I refer to my sister as my sister, again, I don't need to show them that. But I do show my family some of the descriptions about our family life, you know? So what would you say is your favorite piece of work that you have published? It's very hard to ask me that, but generally, I'm like a lot of writers I know in that it's like whatever your latest book is, that's the one you're promoting, so you better say that that's the best work, <laughs> you know. But um, there's a difference between what you think is your best work, because usually your latest work is often your best work, at least for me it is, because you like to think you're improving. Um, but then there is like favorite work or works that, you know, you have a fondness for. Um, my second book, for example, Daughters of Hoy, was this kind of odd collection of short fiction. It was one novella and three stories. And it was just kind of this odd second book. But I love this book. And I always will. Um, it's not perfect. There are things in it that I think if I were writing it today, I would write better. I would edit better. Um, but it's a book I have a great fondness for. Um I like, um, there's some short stories I have that are just their own thing, uh, which I really like. Um, and I, I don't know why they were what they were, but they, they are. Um, there's one short story I have called Servitude, which is in my most recent collection. And when I wrote it originally, it just came out of not nowhere. I was sort of stalking this guy. <laughs> Not really. I mean, there's a guy I would see, this complete stranger on the subway. And there was just something the way he looked and everything that just sort of struck me. And I saw him a few times going to the same location. So I one day followed him, which was a terrible thing to do. And I thought, I better not do this anymore. I did stalking as a, I mean, real stalking as a girl guide. And, you know. Real stalking. What, what does that you mean? You follow people and try not to be seen. Why? It's just a method of whatever. research. Yeah, I guess I don't know. You, you, well, it, you know, it's it, it originated with stalking animals. How can you follow an animal in the woods and not be, you know, not scare them? So you could do that for people too. And I remember as a girl guy doing it with my sisters, and like then somebody would sort of realize that we were following them, and then we'd run away. You know, I mean, we were kids, like eleven or twelve. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I thought well this is not good. I can't sort of stalk this person. But I then began to imagine him and I turned him into a character for my story. So I've always had a fondness for that story because it kind of came out of, in a way, nowhere. It's not the real guy, obviously. Yeah. Wow, so stalking is a great training for a writer and for a spy. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> well, you know, writers are kinds of spies, I guess. <laughs> especially, is a very powerful figure in my life. She was a very dominant figure. She has Alzheimer's now, so she's quite elderly, and she doesn't know who I am. And I had this terrible relationship with her for a long time. We fought a great deal. But, you know, you, you fight with the people you love, too. And um, it, she was a, not the easiest mother. So, um, but she, she shaped me. She was my biggest influence. She was the one who drove me to be ambitious, to study, to um, to never settle for less um, because 
she always felt like women should just go out and do more. Although she was a woman of her time. Um, after she married my father, she gave up her work. She was a pharmacist. And she said, well, you know, um, a woman has to, you know, just have a profession in case her husband can't work, which I don't think was entirely true. I think that's what she said, because that's what women in her generation said and did. But it wasn't entirely true. And it, my parents were not happily married as a result. Um, and so this sort of, but at the same time, we had a great family environment. My siblings and I get along very, very well. I know other siblings who are horrifying the way they don't get along. And, and we did and, and still do. And we live in different parts of the world and we can, we can more quickly arrange a get together through distance, time, varying schedules and very different professions and all that than my partner's family who all live pretty much close together, you know? So, and I find this quite extraordinary. So I wanted to examine what made us family, why we were who we are. And I knew there were certain things that were important and there were certain things I wanted to record. My dad was also a very interesting man. He died too young. He was 75 and it was sudden. It was an aneurysm. And it was a big shock when it happened for me. So I I spent time thinking about him. And I was very close to my dad. I was very fond of him and he was very fond of me. So um, we got each other. But at the same time, he was a pain in the neck. You know, he was a Chinese father. <laughs> and Chinese fathers are a pain in the neck. And so I wanted to explore that. So these are the kinds of things that you have to use the real person and write about that. And, and in which of your books uh, can we meet your family? Oh, in Evanescent Isles. Um, that was my first real all nonfiction collection. And I hope... I'm working on this other one now called Typhoon Mum. <laughs> and it's about living with my mother's Alzheimer's. And so you'll meet more of my family in that if it ever gets finished and published. Juji's work has earned her a number of awards, including an O. Henry Price story, a Cone Award from Plowshares, and a place on the shortlist for the inaugural Man Asian Literary Award. You can learn more about her on her website, jujiwriter.com. <laughs>